Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we have part two of our actually three-part podcast with Yale golf coach Colin Sheehan. This podcast was supposed to be two parts, but then uh, had to wrap up the pod after I already posted part one, and then Colin and I talked for like another 40 minutes. So part three will be out on Monday night, Tuesday morning-ish. And hope you guys enjoy this episode. I had a lot of fun talking with Colin. And without further ado, here is part two of the three-part podcast. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Once you graduated college, you started writing and uh, editing golfing magazine. Yeah, it was the golfer magazine. The golfer. I got. Magazine. The, I was. I was. I originally wanted to get into architecture. I sent a few letters. I didn't. I, in hindsight, I didn't really pursue it as more aggressively. I was too. I was too shy. I guess. God bless Ron Forrest. At least he he replied, and we we had a series of long phone calls, and he was trying to figure out a way to help me out and. Um, and you know, I wound up, uh, I used to, I used to help when I was sort of out of college looking for work, living at home, uh, a neighbor of mine, Tom Graham, this wonderful guy, he's like 20 time club champion at country club of Fairfield, great player. You know, he's an RNA seminal national guy. Um, he occasionally would ask me to, you know, drive him to the airport or pick him up in the city or whatever. It was almost like just welfare for me. And he'd give me a hundred dollars. And one time I had to go into the city to pick him and this other guy up. They were at some black tie event at the Metropolitan Club. It was like a Robert Burns night in January. And, uh, and they were having a laugh and they mentioned they had served haggis. And I casually said, um, oh yeah, that's what Sandy Lyle served at the, at the for his master's, for his champions dinner the, in 1989. And they were like, how did you know that? I'm like, oh, I just, I don't know. I, I mentioned when I, when I worked in the bag room at the Patterson Club one year, I worked for Brendan Walsh when I was 15 and 16. And I was, they asked me to help clean out the attic. And there was this cache of like golf digest from the 70s, a box. It must have been every issue from like 72 to 79. And I wound up reading them all. <laughs> I wound up uh, having a sort of, uh, an unnecessary uh, expertise in golf trivia and or just loving the game. It's really what it was. And I was very lucky to caddy at the country club of Fairfield growing up. And my town had a nine hole par three course, a public course, a Jeff Cornish par three course. That was a dollar 35 to play. So I was always really into golf. And then, and this guy in the back seat was the publisher of the golfer magazine. And he, he asked, he asked me if I wanted to come to work on Monday. And I was like, sure. I, I started in uh, early February of 98 just as an editorial intern. And by the end of that year, I was managing editor of a small magazine. But it was a great time to be in New York. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was wonderful to be sort of writing and editing and traveling. 
still a healthy publishing circuit of, of books coming in. We'd get the galleys to four or five books every week. I remember just constantly reading them all on the train. Um, it was like a master's degree in golf and golf architecture in those years. And the one thing I really noticed was I was sent to play a lot of new courses and they were not good. They were not, and they weren't nearly as good as the old courses. It's when I really started to see a, a sort of develop a sort of, uh, you know, a sort of an opinion about modern courses and, and versus new and old. And it was just, you know, it was, it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see golf in that sort of era um, and interviewing, interviewing architects and players. And uh, it was, I was living paycheck to paycheck, but I was like a poverty jet set lifestyle going on press trips and, and checking in like to hotels and stuff. It was, uh, you know, it was a good, it was the only time I could have done that when I was sort of 22, 23, 24. And, uh, but I, I still had an ambition to move beyond that as much as I enjoyed it. And I really did. Um, I, I, I wanted to get into, uh, you know, design and development projects eventually. And the, and the one sort of um, moment that really sort of uh, helped kick that along was visiting Kings Barnes in 2000. I was so impressed with the course um, in the context of what I had seen the previous couple of years when generally just seen a, just a string of poor and mediocre new courses, uninspired, unwalkable, artificial, um, just a litany of just sort of of um demerits on every every course you went to king's barnes was amazing and i was equally impressed by the sort of restraint on the clubhouse the sort of small scale of it and i I've, i i made it a point to find out who was involved in the project who developed it and, and i eventually got in touch with mark parson and super smart individual someone you should definitely have on your podcast um and we became friends and, and I, I eventually tracked him down, you know, I tracked him down and we had a series of just, you know, two hour long phone calls. And he told me about this. His next project was going to be Castle Stewart in the Scottish Highlands. And, uh, I, you know, I sort of agreed to, in know, two or oh three to, to be an intern on that project and move there. And it eventually with a little bit of delay in the permitting and entitlement process, it led to moving there in 2006. I was there for the majority of two. I was there for most of 2006 and 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 portions of 2007, getting a witness a really complicated project from the from the sort of ground up. It was really pretty cool. So so at that point, you're probably thinking you want to go dive into golf architecture, and that was your big break. What what uh, why didn't you get all the way into architecture? I guess I'll admit that, um, you know, it's in hindsight, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to live the sort of, um, constant road warrior lifestyle. Um, I, I probably should have been doing that in first six, 10 years out of college. Um, but you know, I, I love living in New York. I love having all of my friends from, from college, you know, a lot of a lot of friends from college there. Eventually met my wife. You know, it's just being being on the road, being living out of a living out of a suitcase, I guess, just wasn't just 
wasn't practical. And so I, I understood the trade-off. And I, but, but really, it was about seeing things from the point of view of the developer. And I was, I was more intrigued. I was, I was interested by this concept of maybe being only involved in five projects in a, in a career, but having them, but having them, but being involved in the sort of on the development side of them as well, and having them, you know, having a much longer and uh, relationship with those projects, sort of how I had envisioned it at the time, um, you know, and. And then, then that sort of fuels aspects of what I'm, you know, what, you know, what we're, what I'm trying to do now and in, in, in some way or another, that's what led to me to sort of try to put the, um, you know, the, try to get the project in Cobtown going. It's sort of what interests me about Kankakee. Yeah. It's what interests me about, uh, you know, those types of projects, maybe having them come fewer and fewer than sort of idea of coming in, building something and leaving. Yeah. But. Yeah. It's like having a long-term connection. Cause that's one of the saddest things is you go, yeah, I go see a ton of places and you, most of the places I see that are public and once were great are now at year 60 of the demise of them. But I was in Philly recently and I saw, uh, Gill's first project, Innisfree, and I was walking around, and you know, for for what it is right now, it's a great public option. But like, you're walking around, and I was I was just looking at it, and you see bent grass, long bent grass, and rough, you know, in the rough, and you, you realize like, whoa, this is really this is almost more depressing because it's it's ten years into the fifty or sixty year right. slide um, that you see most courses, and and. Yeah, it, 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 that's the thing is the architects, once they're done with a project, it's kind of done, you know, it's it's out of their hands then. And that that aspect of the business is 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 almost the more important aspect. Right. That's interesting. Like you, they don't have control after the fact of the, how it's presented or. But, you know, it's, it's it, it reminds me to an extent of the helplessness I felt when I was sort of arguing with my publisher about how he was going to present the book and he wanted to do you know three three volumes in a slipcase and and you know i in the end it was he was the publisher i didn't have a choice even you know in spite of the sort of you know all the hard work i did i i feel you, know, you you hear that from you definitely hear that from architects you know they yeah. spend all that time working on stuff and then it's up to the owner or the developer or the you know the, the market forces take place and the next thing you know it's Right, it's been compromised. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's brutal. It's uh, I I could only imagine how that feels like as an architect. It was when you know something's going the wrong way and and you can't do anything about it. I I saw one of Mike DeVries' early courses, and on one of the holes, a centerline bunker is now a centerline pond. It's like <laughs> couldn't drain the bunker, so you just make it a pond. It's like it makes the it turns the hole from like a a spectacular hole that. You know, you could you felt like you were on at Prairie Dunes once you get past the centerline pond on, but instead, like it's just offensive because there's a pond in the center of the fairway. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like what happened there? Exactly, and it's just. And I I remember texting him. I'm like, I'm sure the centerline pond's not original. And he's like, Yeah. (laughs) Dot dot dot. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's just like you you lose uh, so much of it. So uh, you, you're a, you're a big student of golf course architecture, um, 
If you were going to put together a Mount Rushmore of architects, who would it be on it? Um, I feel like uh, I feel like when you're on a, the best of Alice McKenzie, I feel like you're on the work of genius. Um, I do love uh, I do love McDonald. I do, I, and it's even with this relatively s- small sample size. Um, always, always loved Colt. I've always loved his work in the UK. He was blessed with sort of, sort of wonderful sights. And then I, I do think, and I think that I probably could come up with a better answer, but, uh, I, I still think Ross is sort of somehow underrated. He gets like knocked for having so many courses. <laughs> There's some, and his, but this, the sort of, I think that would be my quick answer. That yeah. four, you only get four for a Rushmore comparison, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, who who would be who would be the one that is you'd say underappreciated? Where you'd say like you, he's not a Mount Rushmore guy, but he's <laughs> a guy that everybody that the general public doesn't understand, or or that his you know that their work wasn't you know was misinterpreted or lost, whatever. Well, I, I agree that I agree with you that um, you have, you know, you, you, Langford, Langford and Moreau were building, were were are building, were ambitious in their in their projects and their and the degree of difficulty of the sort of shots around the green. I put them in there. I don't know. So. You have to in the in the Met section. You, you you just you see all these Devereux Emmett courses that are just sensational. Walter Travis, I can't even get over how good everything Walter Travis ever did was fabulous, and I love his variety of bunkering. Um, William Flynn, is there? I mean, there's not a more perfect golf course than Shinnecock, <laughs> you know, than his best work. Um, who else doesn't get it? You know, he, he's well covered. Um, Perry Maxwell. Perry Maxwell, geez, I just took the yeah. team this fall. I took it. The the, the uh, Old Town had an event for the first in the first time in the history of Wake Forest in, in fifty years. Old Town hosted a Wake Forest tournament this past September on a Monday Tuesday. The practice round was the Sunday that Tiger won the Tour Championship. By the way, that place is sensational. That's what Augusta wants to be. The width of the course was incredible that the, the sort of and yet the angles the, the critical sort of preferred angles were were something my players love figuring out I, i'm blown away perry maxwell's sensational so how do you how do you go about building a schedule did you see that old, they were going to host at old town and immediately you're like we have to go there we got invited that was an invite uh coach haas uh is a friend but Maybe Dunlop White, their um, yeah. their golf chair, recommended Yale. We always bring a little, you know, we bring a touch of class to an event when when Yale Yale's there. <laughs> you know, we bring our twenty one national championships to the. Uh, <laughs> but uh, twenty one you know, that was just an honor to get invited, and we went down on Saturday morning. It was a Monday Tuesday event, and so we 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 flew down Saturday morning. We played an extra practice round, which was which was really useful, and um, but yeah, so we we. We, we generally play in the Northeast. We're limited to sort of 
a certain number of degrees on the road, days on the road, you know, d- dates of competition are limited uh, to an extent. Um, we definitely have a sort of a cap on our Monday, Tuesday tournaments. We basically try to play one of those a year. Um, but so that was a coup to get in it. We played our the team. The boys were boys played great. They they played their way into the final pairing for with with Wake and Louisville on the sort of final round on Tuesday morning. We, we stubbed our toe a bit and finished sixth, but uh, it was it was a fabulous experience. That 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 there needs to be more events like that. And you know, and I and we're invited back, but the club only gave Wake a two year contract. They're, they you know, yeah, they're one more year than. Augusta National gives CBS, but uh, hopefully that becomes a a, a fixture, because um, that that was a perfect example of an event where you know seventy five college golfers were treated to a, a pre World War II gem. Uh, it was walkable, fabulous. Scores were low, but who cares? Best best team won. The best player. The best player won. I I kind of feel that way with like great architecture. It it's rendered, you know, it's it's rendered less, you know, challenging by distance and technology. But I feel like it still separates the class because of of the green complexes and the angles that they force. Like especially at at really great golf courses, like you still have to play them really well to to take advantage of the distance because you can be in positions on a good, you know, well-designed great greens like Maxwell greens. If you're out of position, you know, you have, you just have no chance. It doesn't matter if you're 50 yards or, or 250 yards. Absolutely. You get the, I love the sort of the, um, the scoring, the elasticity of scoring where, a player plays well, shoots 67 and someone, someone else plays poorly and it's 77. It's like you can, and then you could, those two golfers could flip roles and, and, and flip scores the next day. You know, it's, I find that interesting. Like it, it appears easy until it's not until you're out of position and you're making bogeys. It's like, there's something, it, it's, it's, it's not always apparent like why you were able to stand underneath the hole. It's because you set it up with a good tee ball and, and, I was blown away by Old Town being like probably as close to what Augusta National looked like. And when when Old Town opened in 1939, it had to be like a twin with Augusta National in 1939. Mm-hmm. That so remarkably similar. It's uh, I'm I'm really kind of bummed. I I always make like every start of the year, I have five courses that I want to see for the year, and. Um, it was like one of the five that I wanted to see just because of like the way Bill Corr talks about old town. It's like, well, that's a place you got to go see. And now you hearing that, hearing you say that. And I, I, I was talking to a guy and he was like, Oh, they, they, the a flood washed away one of their holes. So they have to rebuild one of the holes out there. And I'm like, they're, he's like, yeah, you can't, can't go down there until next year. And I'm like, shit, you know, I didn't, I didn't get that one get that one done this year how, how recently was that like i think it was like a couple weeks ago wow so you might must have gotten it right before i think right. it was the hurricane it was hurricane uh it was flow oh oh well the the major it's possible they had just they had sidestepped the one that hit the hit the coast but mm-hmm. maybe the, i don't know what it was yeah no the one that came up it's interesting yeah. so uh you 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 
I know you love golf in the UK. Um, have you been to Australia? Definitely. I went on one trip in, two, in uh, March of eight, or April of 2003. I might have been there 13 days and played like 18 courses. <laughs> it was an aggressive visit. <laughs> Very. That's the way it has to be, though. When You don't know when you're going to go back there. You never know. Yeah. It was beautiful. Fell in love with the Seven Sisters. Um, loved New South Wales. Could live in Sydney. Um Enjoyed Newcastle. Did not get to, and uh, and then uh, finished in Adelaide. Did not get to any of the islands at that point. I sort of figured I'd have to get back. Uh-huh. Um, you got to take a but, team team trip down there. Spring I know we're trip. allowed to do. So one of the great sort of uh, legacies of my predecessor is is the international trip. Um, I uh, was so fortunate to go on it in two thousand nineteen ninety six as a junior. Uh, Coach Patterson began at Yale in 1975. He took the team in 1976 on the first of uh, what must have been eight quadrennial trips. Uh, so the NCAA allows you to, to have an international trip for, to compete internationally once every four years. So essentially one, one time in your undergraduate experience. And he takes them to England and Scotland. He took them to England and Scotland for two weeks and played matches against Oxford and Cambridge and the universities of St. Andrews and Edinburgh and, and equally fun, like club matches against the old Bufties at Muirfield and, and Royal Sinkports and Royal Liverpool. And uh, that trip to me in 1996, our spring break trip, we went in March, two weeks, a fortnight in the UK during March, uh, where we played alternate shot and played winter golf and we got snowed out at Oxford. And, uh, that was the sort of most, uh, important two weeks of my time at Yale. That's where, uh, it, you know, it was, it was like golfing diplomacy. It was just, uh, fascinating to play Lynx courses, to play Heathland courses, um, to just, just, just completely fall in love with the culture of golf, the pace of play, the way they sort of, the way everyone had a crooked swing and they were all so competitive. Uh, the ground game, I just love the camaraderie, you know, just, and that became, I, I sort of spent, I, I returned in 98 and then I, between 98 and sort of 2008, I probably made 35 trips to the UK and lived over there for, you know, probably easily spent over a year and 18 months of my life over there. So, uh, I, I I was going to ask you, like, if you could play one area the rest of your life, where would it be? But I almost would say, like, if you got 10 rounds and you're in the, in the UK, where would it be? Um, everywhere. There's not a, there's, there's literally 17 regions with a week's worth of golf that you could play. Um, but I would say, uh, I'm part Every time I want to say I'm partial to Scotland and Ireland, I sort of realize I'm partial to England. Uh, I've only spent one week in Wales, and, it, and it's beautiful there. But I guess I would, um, to me, I would have told you in 2000 that I would, my goal would have been to um, retire with a, or have a, a, a small house in Ireland near Ross's Point, County Sligo Golf Club. Um, or a, a, a sort of a dream would be to sort of spend a, six weeks 
in Sligo every summer playing Ross's Point at, at 5 p.m. playing Twilight Golf there. It was before, of course, was probably uh, modified by Pat Ruddy. And I don't, I don't have the same affection for it anymore. But I think now I, I might, I probably would, I'd probably sort of live somewhere in the west of Ireland, probably in St. Andrews. I also could see myself down on the coast near uh, Sandwich, <laughs> any, anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't, I, I, you know, I, I, you can't spend enough, you can't spend enough days of your life golfing in the UK and Ireland. You really can't. What's, what's your favorite course that you've never, nobody ever talks about, you know? Well, my my whole my whole advice to everybody when I send them is is to make sure you 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 pace your itinerary with more than a few hidden gems, and it's not just you know open rota um, world top one hundred courses. They're all great, but in my experience of running running tours there, taking groups from the Outpost Club or even the Yale Golf Team, when we've gone, we went in two thousand and eight and two thousand twelve and sixteen. Um, for every Royal Dornick, there's a, there's a Brora, there's, there's Lossy Mouth, um, there's Montrose, Crail, London, Leaven, uh, Ely, uh, you know, you can name the whole, all of the courses in the, in Cornwall and Devon. I took my 77 year old father this summer on a, on a tour of a few courses in England and we, and we played Polborough and Broadstone and Saunton East and Burnham and Barrow and and Minchin Hampton Old and uh, Wentworth East and you could have and they were all short and fun and and they were a delight. They're even there's something so uh, gratifying about a course that's where you're the only Americans there that day and and there's 150 examples of that. Um, you, um, I love, but of course, if I had to say one, if I had to pick a course where I actually, I realized where I would live now, I'd, I would play my golf at the Royal West Norfolk golf club. I'd play Brancaster while it still exists. And I'd live somewhere in Wells next to sea on the sort of on the North Norfolk coast. And, and I would hide out there and I'd play my two ball golf with, and, and wear long socks and, uh, and have, and have, and have my golfing days be spent with, uh, you know, playing singles and foursomes golf with friends and family coming in to visit. Is That'd it, be a good answer. That that course has the original uh, short hole, right? Isn't it Correct. The, the fourth hole, right? Correct. And you, the road is only accessible to the club during certain, uh, you know, is is occasionally inaccessible during high tides. And it's probably the most vulnerable links to coastal erosion of any course in the UK or one on, on the short list. And it's fascinating. It's how, just how beautiful and fragile it is and, and, and how sort of quirky and unusual and, and how much, and how much, and how much fun it is. It's really incredible. I took a group of 16, I think I took 12 players there in 2017 and they all loved it. They all loved it. And then of course, around the corner is, is Hunt Stanton. And on that trip we played, oh, geez, we played uh, Royal Worlington played around at Knott's Hollandwell and then maybe England's best inland course Woodhall Spa which is like a pine valley which is unreal Yale and Woodhall Spa are some are two courses that could sort of 
be compared favorably, and they should both be in any world top thirty if, if the if if you know for, or top forty uh, in terms of the just design. The uh, I've I've seen pictures of Woodhall. The scale of the bunkers is just out of this world, you know. And, and when, oh, yeah. when it shows in photos, it's like you know it's big, like. Yale's scale and photos shows, but then when you're there, you're even more like, oh my God, this is out of this world, how big this is, you know? And then you think about how they played it back in the day, and it's like, God, if they could play it now, and like, that's the the saddest thing to me when you play these courses like Yale is like, you realize that no modern architect can even do this now because of the critics and the way people... People will just be like, no, you can't do this. You can't have a blind shot uh, off the tee and then a, a blind shot over a blind 20-foot bunker into a green. Like, that doesn't work. We can't do that. It's like, why? Why, well, why everyone, can't you do it? Yeah. Well, everyone's a crit, right, because you get in trouble. All these self-important critics out there, like, you know, the uh, not Andy Johnsons of the world are going to say that this is unfair. You know, I, I am all for this presentation of fair, fun and fair. But, you know, like when golf was played in the teens and 20s with with the equipment they had. Now, granted, they weren't as long and the ball did roll on irrigation less fairways. You know, when the game was challenging, it wasn't patronizing. It wasn't dumbing itself down. And the literature of the game was never better. The architecture of the game was never better. The the it's it's attention as a as a mass, as a sort of, you know, as a as a headline grabbing sport with Bobby Jones and others, it was it was this true golden age, and I don't remember, you know, think about those, think about how difficult it was, and I think that you know that's what Yale was partially about, like in this, this sort of old fashioned Victorian, you know, ethics of of just you know, your it wasn't recreation, it was it was this it was this sort of process that helped. Im- you know, a Teddy Roosevelt style kind of battle of, of self-improvement and overcoming adversity mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, over, you know, you know, responding to the challenge and the task at hand without any sort of whimpering or, or, you know, complaining. And I think that's what, how you, how they must have played, must have thought of Yale in its difficulty. It's like, well, you only have to beat your opponent by one hole or one stroke. and it's out there in, in, in some ways, the architecture is there to break you, to get you, <laughs> to get you to give up, to capitulate. You know, that's partially what was going on out there. Can you, can you, can you sort of persevere through this, through these challenges, through these bunkers, through these seemingly unfair shots? What, what fascinates, fascinates me is like the popularity of golf at that time was insane too you know in the 20s and the 30s it it was become before the great depression it was becoming a one of the biggest sports i guess you could call it in america you know it was on the rise and it was all centered around this it wasn't like the the difficulty of golf is what makes the game great it's yes. not it's not like if it was easy, people wouldn't have these sicko obsessions. Like I wouldn't. I, like I just it would be bowling. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Like it was. 
it was a challenge. And, and by the way, golf, like it took off, it populated throughout America. Like it, they went from, they went from, they went from three holes in an apple tree to like 500 courses and clubs within 30 years. Like it was incredible the way it spread to, to every corner of America. It was, it was unreal. And I, and, and I think they were able to take exist. They were taking, they took advantage of beautiful properties, um, often, you know, existing land that had been existing farmland that had been already drained or beautiful coastlines. I'm fascinated by how the game grew, by how they even just watching architects, shapers and construction crews rebuild a bunker and imagining them building the amount of golf courses they did in that era and how hard it must have been to just just to move soil. And it's it's really incredible. We have to, you know, some ways we should, it, it, that, you know, that we have to honor that. Instead of trying to sort of remove bunkers, dumb down courses, make them easier, make, you know, fear losing, you know, even these rule changes are all sort of geared towards kind of softening the game. It's not, it's not, it's, it's, there's no way that should be the, the sort of, the, the sort of trend that we're going in, but see how it is. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't it's, that's like, I think the biggest problem with municipal golf and, and, in general is like they think it because it's for the public it has to be dumbed down and boring if anything it should be like more interesting and more captivating and and so much wildly more different than your status quo golf because it's for people that are just you're trying to introduce the game to introduce them to the best type of golf don't introduce yeah. them to the to the worst most watered like if you were going to try and get somebody to be interested in drinking coffee would you give them the worst tasting <laughs> cup of coffee like it's kind of crazy that we think this way well you know what but i you know and then yet it's such a it's such a beautiful game that even in those moments like when i used to take the when i was living in brooklyn and take the r train out to uh out to diker diker beach uh and it would be like the winter solstice and there'd be 40 golfers on the course playing a muddy wet, you know, golf course. And, and yet it's, it's just something even, even I, I've, I'm blown away by when, even when it's presented in such poor conditioning, how the appeal just still shines through mm-hmm. how there's still a hundred thousand rounds at Rancho park or, you know, the, the, I'm always driving. When we go to our visit, my family, my, 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 when we drive to Long Island and we on the sort of Throgs Neck Bridge is that is the clear you, you see the you see the public course from the bridge and it's it's the winter it's Christmas Day and it's there's there's four there's golfers everywhere and then we pass a driving range uh, in Bayside and there's and there's every stall is is filled with golfers in the winter it's like incredible yeah. It's, they're sickos, you know. We're all sickos. Right. We're all sickos, and it's all because you're trying to trying to get better. Nobody ever feels like they're the best they can be ever. You know, that's the whole. That's everything in sports, though. It's all about overcoming adversity. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.